The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to Coindesk TV. It's Friday. You're watching The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. We got Danny Nelson, Anna Bidakova, and Jen Sanasi on the show today. And since Jen is Canada, she's going to start us off with this amazing story from the land of the North. What is going on, Jen? I am Canada, and there's an exchange out there that says that they love Canada, and that exchange is Coinbase. They said that they love Canada because the rules are set out and companies are able to engage with regulators compared to the U.S.'s lack of clarity and regulation by enforcement for the industry. The news comes just weeks after Binance announced that it would be leaving Canada due to the regulatory environment. And uh, I'm going to pass this one off to you. Zach, take it away. I'll take it away. I think the timing is just hella funny, right? Like Binance is like, we're leaving Canada because of regulatory fiction. And Coinbase is like, we love Canada. That's awesome. <laughs> so anyway, this, the timing of it is just really rich. I mean, Canada, I think was sort of like a big, bad boogeyman not long ago with uh, some of its actions as it related to uh, censoring certain transactions relating to the trucker protests, whenever that was. So the fact that now um, Coinbase at least sees Canada a bit more favorably, I think it's funny and just goes to show how bad they view the situation in the U.S., right? They've come out and said, the U.K. is looking pretty nice. They obviously set up shop in Bermuda for a pretty novel new derivative exchange. And now they're saying, hey, Canada, we like you too. Any, anywhere but the U.S. It's kind of what we're seeing out of them lately. So that to me is funny. But Danny, I will toss it to you. Yeah, I'm going to just have to follow on your track there. Like it, it, What I'm hearing here is not so much what Coinbase is saying to Canada about Canada, but what Coinbase is saying about itself to all the other exchanges that are no longer in Canada. Uh, as you said, uh, Binance and a bunch of others had to exit that market because of uh, their, I guess, inability to uh, meet up, to match up with the regulatory muster. Coinbase is saying, not for us. We're doing fine. We love it here. And it, w- with Coinbase's current situation in the US, it really does say a lot about where uh, the company is these days on the regulatory landscape. Anna, are you here? What do you think about all this? 
Yeah, well, actually, uh, Binance was not the only exchange who left Canada, was it? I can't remember right now who, who else it was, but there was a bunch of them. That makes it interesting. So Coinbase thinks that uh, it can play on the field that had been abandoned by its competitors. But, you know, let's see if they can. Let's see how actually friendly Canada will be for the, for the crypto companies and if they will be able to keep up with all the requirements that are coming. <laughs> I'd say Canada's pretty friendly, but I can't speak from a regulatory standpoint. I think it's interesting that Coinbase's, you know, largest market share really was in, was in the U.S. That's where their customer base was. And they said, you know, we're going offshore. They kind of reeled back on those statements. We have to think about their shareholders there, their customers. They're all in the U.S. I think that Coinbase realized, you know, we need to make the people who contribute to our bottom line feel a little bit more secure. Um, and so I think they looked at Canada and they thought, hey, this market looks kind of similar. And while the regulation might not be as friendly as we would like it to be, it's probably a little bit more clear than the US. I have heard that Coinbase is going to start hiring a lot more in Canada. Right now, I think they have about 200 engineers that are sitting in Canada. They're looking to fill other roles in Canada soon is what I have heard from some people. And this article says that they are going to try and solve some of the pain points around fiat on ramps when it comes to centralized exchanges in Canada. And I can tell you, it is difficult getting your money from a bank account in Canada onto one of these exchanges. There are a whole bunch of hoops you have to jump through. And even when you do that, sometimes it doesn't happen. So the fact that they are trying to solve this problem, they're working with um, Interact up here in Canada, which is the payment system that you kind of do your debit transactions on, is something that I am happy about sitting here in Canada. Zach, I'm going to toss it back to you. Do you guys even have Venmo yet in Canada? No, like, we still you, email you still money. Don't have, we yeah, still so, email the money. That you email the money. That I'm no, I am always shocked when I hear such crazy, <laughs> crazy words that that's possible. That's, that's insane. That's insane. <laughs> that reminds me of the story of Quadriga Exchange, like one of the first Canadian exchanges that, uh, according to old Bitcoiners, uh, had to mail cash sometimes like in the cookie boxes or something like that, like physically mail cash at that point. And it uh, obviously came to an infamous end because Quadriga is not functioning anymore. But a lot of things changed since then. Yeah, we've advanced slightly to. Have you, to <laughs> yeah, have we? I don't know. I don't know. Slightly, Zach. Stanley Cup Finals. It's like two teams <laughs> in the Sun Belt. That is seriously just a slap in the face to Canada, if you ask me. Anyway, could talk about Canada all day long. All right, Danny, I'm tossing it to you. What do you got? We're going back into Dow land, which is my favorite place to be, as you all know. This week, I've been looking at Hector Dow, which is an Olympus Dow fork, a fork of that uh, old crazy internet money project of yesteryear. Hector's had a, a hard time going. Now it's trying to figure out what to do with its Dow, whether basically to throw out the old methods of governance that it had, which didn't really work so well, and maybe pivot to a new, a new entity that's based in the Cayman Islands that has a lot more aspects of centralization. So we're seeing right here another example of that want to be decentralized, grapple with the real world issues. And a lawyer who was on this call that I attended at 6 a.m. on Thursday morning, I do not recommend that for anyone, but the lawyer said that Hector really can't achieve what it wants to achieve if it just remains a DAO 
it needs to pivot and become a more of a like a well-to-do company that other businesses can understand. So Zach, what do you think of a DAO? Like how does a DAO succeed in this world? What a question. I just love I just love Danny's new beat, which is just like sniping scrubby DAOs from the face of the that. earth. Yeah. He's like, I'm gonna go roll up <laughs> into some calls. It's available to me, it's open, and I'm gonna go write about the shenanigans that happen in these calls because oh, centralized governance is hard, it's ugly. And you see a lot of it uh, unfolding in real time. So I think that is a nice feature of the DAO space, that it is transparent, despite all you nosy reporters getting out there and putting it on the record. But you do get to see it unfold in real time, and you get to see these d- debates unfold in real time, right? Do we need a traditional legal structure? Can we really be decentralized? And that seems to be sort of the tension, the ends of the, uh, the spectrum there on how various groups are approaching this thing. And, you know, we see sort of legal frameworks and legal protections in certain U.S. states and in other countries that look to sort of put some of the LLC framework around some of these internet native organizations. But yeah, it does sort of come back to the fact, well, if this is just going to be a company by another newfangled name, why don't you just be a company? And I think there's obviously like legal ramifications that follow from those decisions, especially as it relates to these governance tokens, which I think are becoming uh, increasingly disfavorably seen, especially by U.S. regulators as it relates to whether or not they're more securities-like than some of the Dow believers would hope. So I, I don't know. I mean, you're going to see, you could see that Danny could do this all day. He could get up at 6 a.m., five days a week, find a DAO that is grappling with these issues, and maybe it'll advance the conversation and get us to some consensus on how DAOs should work. But I don't know. Jen, what do you think? I support that, Danny. I also love this new beat of yours. And every time we talk about one of your investigations, I have kind of the, the same take, right? Like DAOs aren't perfect. I think the only thing they figured out is how to manage a treasury and the rest is kind of gone with the wind. I think there's not enough tools out there to do all of these things that DAOs want to do, that they're working towards, that they maybe promise to do for their token holders. And and the fact that this DAO is having a discussion of being a little more centralized, I think is good because there are so many DAOs out there that are not having these discussions out in the open and they are centralizing more and more just to be more efficient, but they're not communicating it. So while it sounds like the community was very skeptical of this proposal. I think it's good that the conversations are out there. They're open. People and journalists like Danny can attend. The lawyer who was answering questions on this call, Danny, you quoted him in the article. He said, or they said, sorry, honestly, DAOs cannot be naive to think, hey, we'll just be a group of people who are buying tokens and then try to run an organization with tens of millions in a treasury without any expertise that cannot work. I think that that is a fair statement to say, right? And what they're proposing is this legal, legally wrapped entity with managers and directors and supervisors to help guide this organization in the right direction. And I think when there's this much money at stake, that is probably the right thing to do when we don't have enough tools to decentralize. So I think DAOs are a great dream, but Danny, keep fighting the good fight and bringing these stories to life because I love talking about them. Anna, what do you think? I just wanted to ask, like, but, but the proposal isn't going to be accepted, right? Like, it doesn't look like the vote will be in favor in the end. The, the community will vote no, for that. It, 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 the, the vote is running through the weekend, but it looks right now, unless a massive whale shows up, which always is a possibility with these DAOs, it looks like the vote will fail. 
And then, you know, this DAO is going to have to take its its battleship, park it back in some quiet ocean harbor and figure out what to do next. Uh, because these seas are only getting more stormy. I don't know. Maybe the, the real answer is just to go to the Cayman Islands. That, to me, feels like the ultimate answer to a lot of these DAOs. They just have to reform themselves in the Caymans. I don't know, though. It's just such a mess. I love reporting on it. It's really quite fun. Aside from the drama, like what is the unifying theme that you're finding in this sort of suite of DAO coverage? What, what, like, are you seeing similar pain points emerge or, or is each one like uniquely dysfunctional? Well, each one is uniquely dysfunctional in its attempts to stay honest to the idea that token holders can have a say in how things run, right? Like, if you're a shareholder in a public company, you get to vote annually in a shareholder meeting that doesn't really decide much of anything important. In DAOs, there's this broad idea that token holders have a right to chime in. But then when you get to actual implementation of you know, business ideas and business plans, leaving those decisions and implementation up to hobbyists who might not be willing to spend or might not be able to spend 100% of their time on a project leaves a lot to be desired and it ends up in many cases with organizations that either are less decentralized than they purport to be because there are centralized people behind the scenes making sure things happen or are just as decentralized as they say to be and aren't getting anything done because of it so i don't know what the right solution is at this point but wasn't the whole idea of of the DAO, like of of, of the concept of a DAO, to put the governance in the hands of hobbyists and whoever the hell joins. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Like DAOs are supposed to be centralized and messy. And if you cannot reach the, some stated goals as a DAO, maybe you shouldn't have a DAO in the first place. I don't know. That's true. But they, the problem is they already have the DAO and they have millions <laughs> of dollars. There are millions yeah. of dollars at stake in these, in these battles. So they need to figure out what to do with it. Tough spot. All right, we'll put a pause on that Indeed. one and we'll wait for the next piece where Danny goes and hangs out in some governance chats. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Let's talk about Bitcoin, y'all. Let's talk about Michael Saylor. He is the leader of MicroStrategy. I believe he's the president now. He was the CEO at one point. But he is out here at Bitcoin Miami, the annual gathering for Bitcoin enthusiasts, saying that he's not just interested in ordinals. He's having the company explore Bitcoin ordinals for app development. It's according to an interview with Decrypt. So ordinals are sort of the thing that has taken the Bitcoin world by storm. They're sort of NFT-like, a bit different in terms of the mechanics but you can inscribe data, raw data, images, et cetera, onto the Bitcoin blockchain to be stored in perpetuity. We've seen these things go parabolic in the last month as people are inscribing all sorts of stuff onto the Bitcoin blockchain. It certainly has upset some of those described as Bitcoin maximalists, those with the laser eyes in their profile pictures, and they seem to be warring with another tribe of Bitcoin enthusiasts known as the magicians inspired by the taproot wizards. So that's pretty much it. Interesting to see MicroStrategy 
Perhaps capitulating to the ordinal's cause? I don't know. I wouldn't have guessed this one, but this is not the first time that Michael Saylor has commented on his interest in ordinals and the excitement they've created. Danny, I'm going to toss it to you. What do you think? I don't think you could ever say capitulation and Michael Saylor in the same (laughs) sentence. He's on a mission and the mission is to own all the Bitcoin, including yours. He buys Bitcoin, buys Bitcoin, buys Bitcoin, talks about Bitcoin. He is the Bitcoin maximalist, the one true Bitcoiner with MicroStrategy owning billions of dollars of the token. Uh, And in the past, he's come out strong against other uh, chains that he sees as having less value because they go beyond the core idea of Bitcoin, that being decentralized money. Now he's going beyond the idea of decentralized money and embracing uh, these new uh, use cases for Bitcoin. I don't know, though, if it really counts as capitulation or is it more so just an evolution of ideas? Because uh, I don't know, for me, it's all about making Bitcoin fun again. And Bitcoin is about is more fun than it's been in a long time right now. I mean, that's just like your opinion, man. You know, you got these warring factions who are animated by these different memes, right? Is Bitcoin just like money? It should just be just money. Or can Bitcoin be ordinals and BRC20 uh, tokens that rhyme with, I'll just say it, whatever, shitcoins. Shitcoins on Bitcoin. Can it be inclusive of that as well? Oh my goodness. Shield your ears, everyone. Um, So that I think is ultimately the funny thing that this this suggests, right? Even the most diehard of Bitcoin maxis is saying, hey, look at this excitement. Look at this energy. Look at this innovation. And they're saying, okay, huh, okay, maybe this can be part of Bitcoin's narrative going forward. Rather than just boring old Bitcoin as a store of value, it can also be inclusive of fun and innovation. But I don't know. Jen, what do you think? I mean, Danny mentioned it, right? MicroStrategy holds billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And we see every time there's talk about ordinals or these BRC20 tokens, the price goes up. And so I think that Michael Saylor has, you know, has almost a duty to use his platform and talk about Bitcoin and what's happening with Bitcoin and maybe is pumping his own bags. But I will say that when he was buying up all of this Bitcoin, I remember on the show, we asked a bunch of times, like, what does MicroStrategy even do anymore? And, you know, MicroStrategy is into software development. And here, finally, we see Michael Saylor marrying his love for Bitcoin with what the company actually does, develop software. And so I think it's really interesting. He notes an example there. He talks about DocuSign, uh, how DocuSign allows companies to get you know, documents signed and, key- and store them securely. And if we were to think about using Bitcoin to like, have these inscriptions on a blockchain, if we're signing documents, I think it does make sense. And I think he's thinking in a really cool and innovative way. And finally, we're not just talking about Michael Saylor buying up a bunch of Bitcoin and holding onto it for dear life. We're talking about some, some use. And it's just like another story. Bitcoin's having its day in the sun. I love it. Anna, I'm going to toss it to you for last words. Well, I think this is just not the, the first time when Michael Saylor tries to stay trendy on the topic of Bitcoin. He announced uh, like one year ago, maybe, that uh, MicroStrategy will be uh, using Lightning in some way. Uh, now he talks about ordinals. There are not that many details. It's not clear what exactly MicroStrategy will be doing with either Lightning or Ordinals. It is indeed interesting to watch, and there's surely many a conversation about it this week, right now, in Miami at the big conference. So, anyway. And it's interesting that this, our second part of the conversation, is completely dedicated to Bitcoin. Now, like, deeper into the Bitcoin topic, we're going to talk about Ledger, a popular hardware wallet maker that announced an interesting turn 
in their strategy uh, this week and got under fire of criticism and like questioning their mission, questioning uh, their relationship with their loyal clients because Ledger now offers this new service. Uh, so if you own a Ledger hardware wallet and you're afraid that uh, you cannot, you know, keep your seed phrase for recovery of your wallet really safe, you can pay for kind of a custodial service so that your hardware wallet will communicate encrypted parts of your seed phrase to three custodians. One of them is Ledger, another one is CoinCover, the third one is EscrowTech, and they will keep it for you for, the, for, a, for a small monthly fee. And if you lose your seed phrase, they can recover your, your private key for you, so your crypto is not lost. Sounds cool and convenient on one hand. On the other hand, people who have been using Ledger were outraged by the fact that somebody will, like, you know, that the Ledger just even opens this possibility that somebody else will know the seed phrase of a hardware wallet, which is kind of antithetical to the whole idea of a hardware wallet. Uh, and this, th this topic is insanely technical, very complex, but um, I wonder what do you guys think on the first side? What, what, what do you think of this whole PR storm, if I may say, that uh, Ledger provoked with this announcement this week? I'll uh, jump in first here. Uh, I think I'm not going to pretend to fully understand the technical details here, but I will say that it, it seems to me that the, the, the biggest issue that Ledger faces with this is not the possibility of people actually losing their, their keys through this opt-in service, but rather the PR backlash that, it's, that the announcement of it has caused. Because now, even people who don't, like me, understand the nuances of this debate are hearing the message that there's some issue with Ledger that is compromising my privacy and my security and endangering my coins. And that message is a really strong one, and it's going to ring a lot louder than any of the you know, uh, mitigation efforts that led, led your mounts here to try to put out the fire. So if I'm them, what I'm really concerned about now is not the success of this, again, opt-in service, but the messaging that's now circulating around the brand itself. Zach, what do you think of all this? I think people are pissed off and they're being loud <laughs> about it. I think it really comes down, we kind of talked about this thing yesterday or a couple of days ago, but like sort of these dueling priorities from dueling sets of customers, right? You have sort of the hardcore crypto user cypherpunks who are Ledger's existing clientele. You have the CEO saying, hey, this is really what the next wave of users is going to be demanding, right? So you have potentially a more mainstream audience that could be getting into self-custody and want some of the assurances that if they forget their seed phrase, they're not going to like lose a million dollars and it's just going to be bricked and they can't access it, right? So you have these two constituencies that have very different priorities. And right now, the existing customer base is really, really mad because they've made assurances in the past that stuff like this, your key can never leave the device, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then all of a sudden you're saying, oh, you've updated my firmware and now the key can leave the device? Like, that's really bad. I'm in agreement with the people who I'm seeing online saying, hey, this should be two separate products, right? Like, you should have one sort of like, for the crypto OGs. And then you have sort of one like Ledger Lite for the mainstream user who wants some of those recovery options, right? Rather than foisting a different set of values onto each of those respective parties. I don't know if that fully made sense, or I don't know if that's something that they might entertain going forward. But that to me seems like the answer that they shouldn't have sort of rolled out a mainstream tech update that really alienates and upsets people who uh, rightly believe that their keys should never be transported off of uh, their ledger 
nor should that possibility even exist. So that to me seems to be like the sort of the foundational issue around this uproar, but I'll toss it to Jen. Yeah, so I, I could be wrong, but do you have to opt in for this or is it, there's no, okay. So you have to opt in for it. But there's like, you know, there's the possibility of phishing. It's just, a, it's another right. attack vector, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think to Danny's point, the, the messaging around this just like kind of totally blew up. I think it could have been thought about better. You know, a lot of the arguments I'm seeing online have to do with it going against the crypto ethos and privacy implications because you have to share your ID if you do opt into recovery. What this whole story tells me is like there are options out there, right? If privacy is your concern and you are concerned now because of this new Ledger product, there are other hardware wallets out there. There are other options for you to, to store your assets on while this gets figured out. And I think that it's good that we're having this discussion because people who maybe didn't understand how private keys worked or what the benefits were for holding a hard wallet and not are going to understand that now. And that's where I am going to leave it. You leave it there. We'll leave it I'm there with leave you. It there. That's Thank the show. You. Boom. Last <laughs> word. Mic drop. Beautiful. Well done, Jen. All right. That's it for the show today and this week. Another week of the hash in the books. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Zach Seward. We got Danny Nelson, Anna Bidakova, and Jen Sanasi. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend, y'all. Bye now. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.